listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Driving in uh, rain down to the Palo Alto area, where my daughters and my mom um, decided to uh, get some accoutrements for a doll, a set of dolls that they have. If you've ever heard of American Girl dolls, it's creepy. But anyway, <laughs> not that I have an opinion about it or anything, but uh, these dolls, these do- sorry, mom. But these dolls each have a story, okay? And um, some are historical in nature, some are much more contemporary. And and, um, uh, one of my daughters has an Asian doll and another one has a blonde, both from the 70s. Uh, That was kind of their story, at least. And um, then we got a new doll that I think is... Um, kind of a Taylor Swift country music quasi thing, which of course um, chapped me a little bit, but uh, it was just, I thought, really cute watching them indulge in this nurturing. And what was fascinating was, was my older daughter, she decided to take her Christmas money and get, get a, new, a new addition, a new doll. And my other daughter decided to get, crack me up, a horse. <laughs> so she gets this horse that's like this big that is designed for one of these American dolls with its own story and everything. To, to, anyway, it was, it was a fascinating set of choices, but they both were just in this bliss state. And I, I, I can recall this, today at least, there was this roomy quote that was going through my head about... Um, uh, Past and future, cloud awakening from our sight, burn both of them with fire. And how it just, it, there was no past, there was no future, it was just this, you know. And I remember feeling that way uh, as, a, as a youngster when something new came into my experience. Waking up, for instance, after I had just got a new set of, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a new toy or something. So excited to play with it. Or as I was older, in middle school, we were talking about this. Middle school, the real status thing was shoes. It still is kind of, but man, that, that set of shoes that you had, that was kind of, I mean, you could look like a ragamuffin, but if you had that set of shoes, those new Nike waffles, you know, waffle trainers, <laughs> you know, uh, man, you were something, you know, you, you had arrived. And then as I, you know, uh, as I got a little older, I started noticing how that started to dissipate. No matter how much, how much the toy was, whether it was a new car or a new, you know, uh, a new suit or something as, as we reach a different age, it, it diminished in its return, so to speak. What hasn't diminished, though, is the capacity to love beyond self and other. 
that in, indeed has kind of, in, in a really odd way, been enhanced. And I, I've been very public about how difficult it was for me as a, as a, as a parent um, going through uh, uh, the baby stage. I, and I, I've come to realize that there were a lot of other guys, peers of mine, who were in a, in a similar space. That parenting, parenting has been a real challenge uh, for me in, in some respects. In other ways, it's, it's, it's easy. It's still the, the thing about progeny, the thing about um, uh, kids and older people, is you, you bind those narratives, those stories, to time. And so it's always a gift when we can look at each other um, through that lens that isn't clouded by past or future, meaning what has brought things here or what could potentially happen. I hope this makes sense, and if it's not, forgive. But we have this tendency, I think, in relationship with those that we are most intimate with to, to orient orient our work with relationship with other people, uh, we predicate it on gain or loss, as opposed to just opening to what is. I don't have my girls. I never will. I've never had them. They're beings that operate at a different frequency, so to speak, in terms of how my heart and mind relate to them, but I can't I can't hold on to them. In fact, I don't want to. I want them I want them to grow. Same goes for, you know, my, my parents who I love very much. I can't hold on to them. I have to let them go. You know? Khalil Gibran offered up this uh, this talk once or offered up this this book. And my father gave this talk. I've mentioned this before in Sangha, so forgive me if, if I'm looping and it bugs you. But my father was at, uh, this is at the Arena Community Church, and the, the minister at the time was a guy who I really liked. His name was John Brooke. And I remember him being just this very gentle but brilliant man. He, could, he radiated kind of this, uh, this Christ-like vibe. And uh, my father was giving, giving a talk about this passage that Khalil Gibran uh, wrote, wrote some years back where he describes um, the archer and how what we do is we, our child is that arrow and we let them go. And I remember listening to my dad talk about this and how moved I was that he was, he was so good. He should have done that for a living is what he should have done. I mean, the guy should have been a minister. Um, uh, Instead, he went into sales, different kind of ministry, I guess. Uh, but, but it was just this powerful, it was this powerful thing. I felt so proud of my dad, and I felt so angry at the content of what Khalil Gibran was saying in The Prophet. What do you mean, letting, no, you, we're here to, you're here to guide me. And then I remember the conversation he and I had afterwards was incredibly, incredibly moving. It's like, Michael, I'm just going to do the best I can. I got a lot of gaps, a lot of flaws, a lot of, and it was very interesting listening to this as you know a nine or ten year old, and I realized that that's how old my oldest daughter is now. <laughs> so I have to be really careful with what I say. 
I am doing the best I can. Exactly. It's exactly right. I, I, I swore I swore at the television. It was so cute. I swore at the television uh, because I was trying to so contemporary and modern. Apple TV was not streaming the goddamn movie. I said, this is such. Ugh. And the oldest daughter saying, "Daddy, you're the Buddhist." Calm down. <laughs> it's like, huh! And then I said, this is just bullshit. And then the little one said, Daddy, that is, that is not right speech. <laughs> I am screwed. I am totally screwed. I can't, so, so what used to be, and this is the beginning of this, of this, the long descent into their recognition how flawed their parent is. <laughs> and what a gift that is, actually, because that's how they grow. That's the letting go. That's when the arrow's flying. And so I can, I can see now in these really, really beautiful ways how the, the arrow is true. It, it's um, uh, so far. Uh, and despite you know, a divorce, and despite, you know, uh, the, the, the perils of, of being and so forth, there's this really kind of neat spiritual thing that kind of happens as we allow ourselves to, as we allow the world in. Whether or not you have children, this is the case. Whether or not, you know, you, you, are, uh, you have dealt, dealt uh, with children in a healthy way, if you've dealt with them in loss or dysfunction, if you have dealt with them uh, from afar, if you no matter what, those little beings are such great teachers, and they simultaneously allow us to pivot and learn from what's going on externally uh, uh, with the rest of the world, and also with our own with our own parents. So it was a, it was neat, it was it was neat to spend time with, with my mom and with with my girls, and it was neat to, uh, you know, see see all this stuff kind of unfold for me. And you know, as I dropped them off at their mom's tonight, it was, it was kind of like this. Wow, I feel so so blessed, so fortunate. Um, not because of them. But I feel blessed and fortunate because I'm able to feel. And one of the great things about this teaching is that it encourages us to meet our lives at that level, to feel. I know of so much heartbreak and so much tragedy too, but can you allow yourself to feel? Everyone in this room has had some. Everyone in life is dealing with their own nightmare, their own residual, ah. And everyone in this room has their hopes and their dreams. And if they can hold on to both loosely, their pain from past and their hopes and dreams for the future, if we can hold on to them a little bit more loosely instead of clinging, there's, a, there's an ease that kind of pops into a present moment awareness that gets supported every single moment, whether we pay attention to it or not.
So that's the encouragement. The encouragement is, you know, no matter how bad it has been, no matter how bad it seems, no matter how bad it appears it may get, don't indulge that story. Instead, we just meet the experience as it is, as it arises, with as much facility as possible, with as much, as, as much openness as possible. I was a I'm, I'm always surprised when, when I hear, I mean, I think it's, well, it's really important, I think, for us to recognize happiness when it arises, but also to recognize that happiness ebbs and flows. Happiness is not our purpose. Purpose is not to be happy, because then when we're not happy, we're failing our purpose. It's like we're failing our mission. It's not about being happy. It's about being aware. That's that's at the through line of everything. That's at, the, that's, at the, that's at the core of this human experience. The more aware we can be, the more we can embody an awakened spaciousness. The more we can be, instead of being a good Buddhist, we become a Buddha. Instead of being a good Christian, we become more Christ-like in that awareness. And the neat thing about that is that no matter what emotional state we might be in, there we are. There we are. We can be aware of anything. We can't always be happy with everything. Happiness goes like this. Awareness goes in one direction. Keeps, keeps getting bigger. Keeps us in a place where we can hold more. And I think this is especially an especially powerful teaching right now. Especially if it feels like things are crashing down. Or if fear starts creeping in. So tonight as we sit, if you could just be with whatever is, without flinching, there's a tendency for us to run. And one of the greatest, most useful teachings I ever had was when I was in uh, a session, a very long sitting and I thought I was going to just die. And my teacher told me, he said, well, it's not, it's not pain unless you run from it. It's just intensity. It's just intensity. Anybody can deal with intensity. Pain is when you decide you want to get away from that intensity. Then it's pain. Pain is born in that moment. When it's an attachment to not that, anything but that. Instead, if we just kind of open to whatever that is, it's no longer pain, it's just intensity. And if we can practice that on the cushion with our physical, we can practice it on the cushion with our emotional, we can then practice on the road with our emotional, we can practice in life with our physical, we can practice more and more and more. And that's when we can carry, carry this work into the world. That's when we can be <clears throat> awake in this life. Mm -hmm. Let's try for 30 or so minutes.
as we begin to settle down, let's really try to fill this experience with awareness. Let's try to be very aware of how our bodies feel in this moment, if there is tension that's being held. Just feel it. Be there for it. Don't try to adjust it or fix it. Same with mental chatter. Just be aware of it. How's this mind? Is it running? Is it trying to get away from something? Is it trying to move towards something? Watch that mind and recognize that the watcher of that mind isn't moving. Watch this body and recognize that the watcher of this body is not moving. Just be still. something really rich and profound to talk about in terms of it being President's Day and thinking about what it's like to be the president and what it's like to have this president and how surprising some of the emotions that I have felt uh, surrounding his first count of 30 days in office um, and how we can practice with that, how it can offer up a very interesting way of, of seeing ourselves uh, I was reminded by one of our Sangha members uh, who sent me an article today from The Guardian, my favorite newspaper, Guardian in England, on, uh, on uh, the, what a powerful teaching and what a powerful teacher jesters have always been throughout Shakespearean, medieval, on up through, you know, having the jester, the they, the, uh, the fool to poke fun at our own lives um, is always, it's always something, something very rich and how we as Americans have elected the fool um, and what does this mean and what do we do with somebody who behaves like a uh, uh, um, um, <laughs> behaves uh, poorly, uh, who, who behaves like he's lost, even though he's won, who uh, thrives on chaos, it appears, who there's no surprise that his mentor was Roy Cohn, 
so often seen as one of the worst people of the 20th century and how this mentorship has related. So, I mean, there are all these reasons, these stories about how, oh, this is awful, this is... But in fact, the gift in all of it is that it forces on, forces upon each of us uh, an examination of who we are. Because Trump is not outside of us, nor is anyone like him outside of... He's within our experience. And each of us has... Uh, Trumpian qualities and this this article except Derek Derek's the only one without one <laughs> Trumpian quality <laughs> there's nothing Trump-like in him if you've ever felt really strongly about something boom if you felt if you've clung to anything ever boom there you go if you have ever avoided anything if you've ever lost your temper, there we go. So now maybe it didn't happen after the age of four, but still, <laughs> it's there, it's within us, it's within our own psyche. The, you know, the, the, the ability for this situation to inspire us, therefore, gives us, I think, tremendous, tremendous opportunities, a series of opportunities moving forward. And I'm not trying to give everybody a pep talk here. I'm trying to show how this teaching can unfold in ways that are very, very powerful in the here and now. And it's easy to, to discount that because that's what egos want to do. Egos want the war. Egos want the fight. Egos want to uh, see if somebody has drawn a line in the sand so that they can engage them. I think that uh, one of the things that's, that, that always cracks me up, especially about activism in general, especially when activism is coming at issues from, in my view, kind of a limited space, is when it occurs when our intolerance of intolerance shows up, you know? <laughs> You ask, you ask uh, somebody who's, who's uh, in an activist mindset, you know, they're at war with war, and if they are, or if they're intolerant of intolerance, they have just added to the mess rather than to the clarification and deepening of awareness. And this applies to each of us internally as well. Are, are you intolerant of intolerance? Or are you in such a bliss state that you're attaching to non-attachment, which, by the way, will kill it? So we don't want to, as the saying goes, become the evil we're fighting against. What we want to do is be able to open to whatever is, and in so doing, what we can begin to occupy is a different kind of embodiment of, of this work, such as it is. And the work really is about letting go. The work really is about peace. Real, authentic, authentic peace. The kind, the kind that doesn't, the kind that doesn't ebb and flow, the kind that grows. Because it comes from awareness. It comes from, 
as awareness. Awareness goes in one direction. Happiness goes up and down. Here's my little hand puppet. <laughs> Happiness. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, no, hey, yeah, yeah. Depression. Hey, you know. And then, but awareness just kind of goes. Ooh. Whoa. Aha. Man. Okay. So, if we if we take a take a step back, and we look at the you know the, this the tradition, the Buddhist tradition, there are four noble truths. Okay, and usually the first teaching is always kind of about that. So I'm going to back up here a little bit and just give you a, a taste of something that I think might be useful as you approach your day. If we look if we look at the first noble truth that there is suffering or anguish. Uh, all of us have felt it. Chances are you would not be in this room unless you have felt that twinge. Maybe it was intense, maybe it's not so intense. Loss can bring it about. Fear can bring it about, and fear is just an attachment to non-loss. Okay? Uh, whatever, we can get into this place of, ah, some past issue haunts us, some future issue brings stress and worry, whatever, we come into this because of suffering. And there's a cause to that suffering. That's the second noble truth. It doesn't have, suffering doesn't just show up, it happens because we cling. So there's this clinging, there's this grasping. My teacher always used the word grasping. Well, what are you grasping onto? What are you clinging more often than not, we're clinging to this idea of a separate sense of self, as in, I'm in here, everything else is out there. We're okay, but that group over there is, right? That, that opposition, that division, then generates more suffering. There's also an end to this suffering. That's the third noble truth, and this is where it gets kind of juicy. The first two, everybody can go, oh, yeah, okay, well, that makes, at least intellectually, that makes sense, or yes, okay. But that the third and fourth noble truth, the third noble truth basically says, okay, well, there's, 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 there's an end to this. There's a way out, and it's letting go. Which, if you really wanted to push, I know I've said this before, if we're going to tweet out the entirety of sacred teachings, be it Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, Muslim, whatever, pick it. Every one of those teachings basically says, let go and then engage from that place of letting go. All of them. The Bible, be still, know that I'm God. Okay? Uh, turn the other cheek. Sermon on the Mount. If you listen to Christ's Sermon on the Mount, you, you read that. I mean, it's, it's all there. Let go but engage. Christ, a man of peace? Sure. Activist? Hell yeah. Revolutionary? You bet. Buddha? Same thing. All the spiritual heavyweights, all in that, that place. They're not about being compliant. They're about really challenging the status quo of ourselves. So that third noble truth let go, or, you know, there's an end to this, there's an end to the, there's a way of getting at the roots of this cause of suffering. And then the fourth noble truth is the here's how. 
So if we start looking at the here's how, and I kind of alluded to this earlier with my daughter who told me right speech when I said the word bullshit. <laughs> I have said worse, not around her, but we, we did, however, talk, uh, we did talk about um, how a kid at school used um, uh, uh, F-bombing, was what she said. I don't want to say the word, but there was F-bombing at school today, Dad. Okay. And, and what was that? Well, it's just a really bad word. I go, yeah, it is. Do you know where it comes from? And she's like, no. And then I went and told her, did anybody ever see Braveheart? In Braveheart, you know how the, the, the owners of land could, uh, they could go around and anybody on that land counted as property. So the young daughters of uh, the, the serfs, they could, they could go have sex with them. Fornication under consent of king. F, you get it? So we talked about that. Talked about that. It also, in the Georgia colony under James Oglethorpe in America, instead of having the scarlet letter A, okay, which was for adulterer or adulteress, F, U, C, K, for unlawful carnal knowledge. Now, the Georgians are weird, okay. but anyway. <laughs> we were talking about right speech, and that came up, okay? I'm, I was really hopeful in that parenting moment that I undid the curse of it and allowed it to be an intellectual exercise. I may have had a daddy fail in that moment, okay? We'll find out later. <laughs> but the idea that language Language is powerful, and the clinging that we have to words, and the clinging that those words, you know, the stickiness that those words can give to our stories, that's self-authored, and the ones that are authored for us, really gives us some, some place to, to mine this fourth noble truth, the here's how. So I'm going to go through them briefly, I'm just going to just touch on them so that we can have some room for Q&A. But if we start with the right view. Okay, I'll list them off. We start with, we go right view, right thinking, right speech, right action, right livelihood, diligence, meditation, and mindfulness. Okay, those are the, and I, I've, I've kind of I've bastardized the, the, uh, the actual words, but just so we're clear, what is the right view? Well, the right view is more or less... Um, Recognize impermanence. Recognize that nothing lasts. Recognize that everything, everything is interdependent. Nothing exists in isolation. Each one of us in this room depends on the other for our own safety in this moment. It could be, although doubtful, that Julia snaps and starts beating on Jeannie. Now, Jeannie's depending on Julia, but she's not going to do... Don't. Just say okay? It would provide for some great lore for Infinite Smile, but do you remember that time? <laughs> Julia snapped, and I couldn't believe how amazing Jeannie was at counterpunching. Whatever. We have, we have this idea. We have this idea that we're all interdependent, that everything is temporary, and everything is 
infinite at its core. If you have that view, you begin to see things a little bit differently, but that view has a way of radically altering the way we can meet the world. Okay? Next, if we look at right thinking. Well, thinking, everything, I was reminded today by um, uh, a Sangha member, uh, being vigilant right until the very last breath. That in our thinking, when we have ideas that, of separation, okay, that's taking us further and further away from embodying awareness, and when we recognize the great unity of things, and are vigilant about that, it brings us closer and closer to awakening, to awareness. Then, the next step is recognizing that both are true. Both unity and separation are true. Both the one and the many are true. We start seeing that there are two truths. Right thinking, right speech, careful of how we damage with our speech, how we, how we might go after somebody or something, or most dangerous of all, at ourselves. In the case I gave with my daughter, F-bombing, you know? Taking great care to measure our, I don't have a problem, for one, you and you guys know this about me, I think language, if it's used well, the appropriate uh, 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 expletive can be a really powerful, powerful teaching, powerful way of communicating. You know, but taking great care and not being sloppy with our words, written or otherwise. Right action. Is your action in the world consciously coming from and sourced by? what's undivided, what's infinite, what's open. Are you engaging? Has, for instance, as we've discussed for so many people, this recent, recent political uh, drama that's kind of been unfolding, has it inspired an engagement or has it inspired a closure? I would argue that the teaching points us very specifically towards, towards the engagement. If you need to take a break, that can be okay. But let that break be taken purposefully and consciously so that we can re-engage. Suzuki Roshi said, yeah, the world is a mess, but we lean. You know, The world is perfect as it is. I guess we're getting closer to the, the paraphrasing of the quote. The world is perfect as it is, but we want to lean a little. And that lean, if it's inspired by one's connection or felt sense, of the infinite in their, in their bones. We can move mountains. Right livelihood? What are you doing with your days? Are you a taker or a lever? Are you leaving the world something magical? Are you taking from it? That one always I thought was so fascinating. Such a great exercise. Are you contributing or are you taking? Diligence.
What's your intention in this life? In the time that you have left, what's your intention? What's your practice? What do you practice? If you're uh, keeping score at home right now, you realize that these get a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. I mean, it's all deep, but I mean, like when you start thinking, right livelihood, man, am I, am I doing what I can? Right action, am I doing what I can? Am I doing what I should be doing? You know, these types of questions begin to unfold and then that leads us into meditation. Meditation is really important, okay? Being still and cultivating a stillness practice is really, really important in helping us clarify all of these, all of these, uh, 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 all of these positions, so to speak, on the Eightfold Path. If we're going to unfold the Eightfold Path, in other words, we need to be, meditation is really, it's so important that it's there on the cushion or on the, in the chair, however it is that you, you can do it. So that then, finally, we can engage the world from a very mindful place, stripped of its cultural trappings. Doesn't need to be Buddhist. Doesn't need to be Christian. Doesn't need to be anything. Doesn't need to be any tradition. It doesn't need to have, uh, you know, uh, incense with it. You don't have to sit in the lotus position. But being mindful as you approach your day, being aware of what you do as you approach your day, supported by this meditation, supported by this right livelihood, supported by this right action, supported by right speech, by right thinking, by right view. Suddenly all that stuff, that, that fourth noble truth that I've kind of just kind of thrown at you really casually here, gets to be really powerful and allows us to do the best we can. It allows for us to screw up and then go right back, right back into it. It allows for us, no matter what we're facing, to face it with, with a fullness. And we begin to recognize there really are no mistakes. There are no mistakes. Stuff happens and we can then meet it continually, giving gifts constantly. myself as like a collective of my peers mm -hmm. stuck wanting to engage mm -hmm. a lot of this information that we're taking in from this change in our democracy and I think it's the engagement I think I'm trying to understand why even myself or more of my peers are not engaged. I guess the question is, um, at what angle should I try to unlock that kind of fear? What am I gripping on to? 
What are we working on? Like, what are we? Do you know where we are? Well, so I, I, w I wouldn't presuppose to know where everybody else is, but I think fear is devastating to um, uh, to collectives. So in other words, afraid to fail. Yeah. Well, I think they're they're afraid. What I think at this point is, what the hell do we do? Right. Right. How. How, how, how do we engage? Well, quite frankly, one of the gifts of this era, uh, the birth of this era, is that, boy, it's forcing us to reconsider how we engage because most people don't know how. You know? That we have the argument, as I've been reading it, uh, is like we've been lulled into a certain kind of complacency, yeah. and here we are. Everybody kind of going, whoa, 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 wait, 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 right? Gotta do something. And nobody has those muscles. Nobody's worked them out. You can't smash the glass. You can't smash the glass, exactly. <laughs> so, so what I think, and, and I, I would just encourage us to go small, but consistently. In other words, everybody's going everybody's gonna to come at this in a different way, from a different angle, from a different, you know, and I think there are plenty of people, I mean, this guy got all of his votes for a very good set of reasons. There's been an entire subset of our country that has been ignored for 30 some odd years and kind of come to, it's, it's odd that he's the champion of them, but boy, you know? So, so I think there's a chance for all of us to learn about each other a little bit more deeply. I think there are things that have contributed to this. Number one, uh, the men and women of Washington I wish they would stay over the weekend together and play cards and drink scotch. <laughs> they used to do that. It's very hard to slam somebody on the Senate floor when you went to, you, you know this, this guy's kids and you went to their bar mitzvah, you know? It's very hard to, that's, instead now everybody, everybody's isolated. So there's an isolation that's going on in the halls of our government that, that's contributing. I think also there's some isolation on our part. My, um, many of the people in this room actually, but my parents' generation, you know, if they didn't, if they didn't go into the army, they at least had an opportunity to, uh, uh, to share with a greater cross-section, uh, a less uh, stratified cross-section of, uh, of this country. The point I'm trying to make here is, I think, I think conscription, or I think that uh, having a draft, or having something where you have to do some kind of service with other Americans. But now duty's dissident. Yeah. Now, now it's like we are opted into doing that, but now our duty is the dissident. It, right. It's like the fight. I get it. I get it. But the thing is, if it becomes if it becomes its own fight, it becomes its own war. It becomes part of the problem, not the solution. So resistance doesn't mean war. Resistance, right words. it means lean, okay? Now, that lean might take the form of an op-ed, except people don't read papers anymore. So, so you know, but how, how does it happen? I think it does happen in small, small, small ways. Small. Um, and I, I, but I would, I would also say that it, it's, got, it's got to start with an examination of self, as opposed to how do I fix this problem? Right, because this isn't too far away from that, or this. Instead, this I think is much more helpful in 
creating the kind of environment where wisdom can be thrown, you know? It's much harder to do that from a place of, of uh, righteous anger or frustration. And I think a lot of people are feeling that. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to not let that take over, but rather, rather, as Lincoln might say, the better angels of our nature to begin to uh, fly uh, into, into this arena. We'll see. Yeah. We get to author it. Yeah. This is our, this is our, uh, you know, this is our lift. And it's not just the lift of youth. It's every, everybody, everybody, we have to look at our world, I think, with, uh, with eyes that are much, much more open. I had a professor, <coughs> this is odd, in the fall of uh, 1983, his name was Ken Jowett. One of the best professors I ever had. And he's probably five feet four, five feet three inches tall. And he could fill the entire Wheeler Hall, 600 people in it, every Tuesday, every Thursday, packed. It was absolutely packed. And he ran, never missed a beat for 90 minutes. Would give these amazing discussions. Mm -hmm. And his point was towards the end, he said, I will give all of you a prediction. The Soviet Union cannot last for more than five or six years. It will no longer be a bipolar world. It'll be a multipolar world, and you will see the politics of rage take over. He went through this whole, I remember it like it was yesterday, because I remember thinking to myself, this guy's full of it. <laughs> My God, he went right down, and guess where we are? Yeah. You know, he, he, and so his point was, so how are you gonna engage that? <laughs> how are you gonna engage that type of world? Here we are, and I think it's really important for us I think, and I'm not trying to be political here. I'm trying to take this practice in, into hearts and minds, uh, my own too. How do how do we how do we meet the television without letting the television uh, become our truth? How do we how do we recognize that just because you don't like a truth doesn't mean it's fake news for yourself, right? As well as for for him. But do we go after what's right now or what's right next? Well, you, you never know what's going to be right next. You do know what's but, right now. And right next is totally and always, it, it's always affected by what's right now. So the right now is really our only option. Right next happens here. And it's not to say you can't take responsibility for it. Right. You know? I hope that kind of makes sense. It does. There's it no does. answer. There's no answer here. I think what I take is from is to be small about things. Mm -hmm. and, right. Yeah. And I would Me also say there, there is going to be a chance for each and every single one of us in life to have very big moments. They show up. Be ready. I hope our small moments can be all one big moment. Yeah. 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 I, I'm sure. I, I, I would, uh, I think... For us to lose a sense of hopefulness is for us to give into ego's obvious play. And ego's obvious play is, let's go, right? That's not healthy, you know? It's, it's that sense of separation, okay? We're all in this together. We're all in this together. So let's gain understanding of self and other, recognize peace within and without, let that inspire the lean. Every time, right action, 
right speech, right view, meditation, mindfulness. Yeah. It's not easy. Just to editorialize for two seconds here. Can't get down. I am inspired every time I read a book of history. <laughs> I realize how really bad people have had it in the past and how just acting small like did some amazing stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't take that long. Go back to Dr. King. He was not a wealthy man. In fact, he didn't have much money at all. And his small actions became big, you know? Um, and I guess it was Tom Brokaw who said recently, uh, well, you know, I think it's really bad now. <laughs> I think it's really bad. 1968 was awful. <laughs> that was the worst ever. That's pretty good. It's like Tom Brokaw after a few cocktails. Oh my God! My God! Who's been doing all the f bombing? You know that suit, Georgia. I can't imagine. I mean, I lived through it. I remember the darkness and pain I felt as a four-year-old in 1968. I remember that vividly. I remember when I remember when Bobby Kennedy was killed, and I remember seeing that black and white TV. We had, I remember, and uh, yeah, it was jarring. I was a little tiny kid, you know. Uh, and this is after Dr. King was killed, and then Watts, and then Tet, and then I mean, okay, game on, right? I think we have to we have to take great care to recognize perspective and and symmetrical as opposed to asymmetrical emotional responses to things and that's one of the things that that this practice helps uh, helps mitigate and regulate in really powerful ways really easy for us to spin you know That's not a little editorial. I editorialized there a little bit. Yeah. Um, this is going to be more a comment because having spent time in um, Middle America and having friends there, one of the things I'm doing is, is <coughs> just really bringing them to mind. Yeah. No, it's not about because this isn't about rational. Right. This is this is about this is about attachment. You know? Yeah. And and I would I would say for, for each and every single one of us, there is much more we can do. 
it's not just about praying for them or putting them higher on our prayer list or, or the president higher on our prayer list. It's about putting each other higher on our prayer list so that we can actually begin to, I mean, we, when we are forced out of self into, into the world, great things happen, okay? And this happens at a very personal level. I mean, this is what love is. Love is being forced out of the boundary of self. And so when we force ourselves to engage, to open, amazing things happen. Um, and I'm convinced that, that this, is, this is just an amazing opportunity. It's an amazing opportunity. And, and when it seems super duper daunting, that's just ego. That's just ego writing another story. You really want it bad? You really want it bad? Try, be, try being an African-American female in 1885 Alabama. That would really have sucked. Okay? Just be a human in 1200, uh, uh, 1200 somewhere around Central Asia. That would have sucked. Try catching the flu in 1920 in Europe. Right? You know what I'm saying? So, so there's, a, there's a perspective that I think media has lost. They, they, they haven't been able to show us historically, you know, Andrew Jackson, you know, in his inauguration, when Andrew Jackson was inaugurated, people were jumping out of the uh, second story window in the White House. They trashed the place. I mean, it was just this crazy, crazy party. But there were more people there than at his inauguration. <laughs> <laughs> That's fake news. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> Thank you. Great having you back, bro. Thank <laughs> 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 <laughs>